as you know, we've been on this series called How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people. And so there's this really amazing journey that we're on where we're going through the Lord's Prayer. And the whole series is centered around the Lord's Prayer. In fact, the book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People by Pete Gregg, is really uh, what this series is based on. And, it's, and it just goes line by line through the Lord's Prayer. And we've been doing that. And our goal is that we're doing this at the beginning of the year because we want your relationship with God to be renewed and reinvigorated. We, we don't want you to f- feel like prayer is a burden or a duty or an obligation. I, I, want, I want you to want to pray. You, where you, you get up in the morning, you actually want to talk to God. You get ready for bed at night, and you want to talk to him. And so as we've been working through this prayer, line by line, it's been really incredible because who doesn't want a loving father in heaven? Who doesn't want to recognize his holiness and his beauty and worship him for who he is and and honor his name? Everybody wants his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're all looking for that nice, fresh loaf of daily bread, right? Yeah, I like this prayer thing. This is good. But then just when you're feeling great, the next line sneaks up on us and hits you right where it hurts. There's like this jab right to the gut. Forgive us our sins. No qualifiers, no excuses, no ifs, ands, or buts. Everybody needs forgiving. And then suddenly the the right hook right after that. As we forgive those who sin against us. It's the only line in the Lord's Prayer that has a great big fat caveat. If we won't forgive others, we won't be forgiven ourselves. It's a powerful idea. Right here, says America's greatest living theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, is where the Lord's Prayer is most difficult to pray. Perhaps that is why this is the longest and the most involved petition in the Lord's Prayer, he says. And it's the hardest line in the Lord's Prayer, no doubt about it, but it's also by far the most outrageous. Like there's no please, no sorry, right? Just this audacious request sounding suspiciously like a demand, forgive us our sins. Notice this is the only part of the prayer where Jesus repeats and then rephrases it for clarification. And and that is in Matthew 6, 14 through 15. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. The thing I want to suggest to you today as we open the scriptures is I want to suggest that forgiveness is the identifying mark of those who follow Jesus. It's the identifying mark of those who call themselves Jesus followers. Nothing defines Christianity like forgiveness. And I've spoken on forgiveness several times over the last few years, and it is amazing. Every time I do, I can 
sense. I can feel that I'm, I'm hitting a nerve in people's lives. Because so many of you sitting in this room may feel like you've done things in your life that really hard for people, for, for, for God to forgive you. Some of you are sitting in this room and you have hurts and wounds from your past. People who've violated you or abused you and you're, it's so hard to enter, even entertain forgiving them. I want to suggest to you today that this line in the middle of this prayer, this pattern of prayer is profound. And we're going to launch into one of the stories of Jesus in Luke five here in a moment, but let's pray. Let's pause and pray and let's let God have his way as we open up the scriptures. Father, we thank you for our time together. I pray that you would speak to us, that as we open up our hearts and let your word in that light would shine and drive out the darkness, give us revelation and understanding how to apply it to our lives, our daily lives. We thank you for this, and we trust you for your grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you remember the story. Some of you might know it. It's a story of, that, that of Jesus healing a paralyzed man who was brought to him on a stretcher. Four friends carrying him to Jesus and it happened in a place called Capernaum. And I went to Capernaum in Israel and, and we saw this is believed to be the place where Jesus did this miracle. And these are all first, this is like a first century synagogue, a first century gathering place. And as they, and as they, um, filled up this house. Jesus was teaching. Jesus was expressing his, his desire for them in, through the scriptures, and, and he was healing people. And so four guys went and got their friend who couldn't walk himself, and they tried to get in. But as you could see, it was so small, packed with people, they couldn't get in. Couldn't figure out how to get to Jesus. And so they figured out we got to do something aggressive for this guy. And they got up on the roof and they lowered him down over Jesus's head. And, and they wanted him to heal him so desperately, they were willing to do something drastic. And I want you to notice the first thing that Jesus said to this man who needed healing. In verse 20 of Luke 5, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I love this, verse 22. Check it out. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. 
I want to see more remarkable things. How about you? I want to see God do what he did in those days. And he is doing it around the world. And as we, as we unpack this story, I think it's interesting because we see something of Jesus' priorities. And his priorities are interesting to say the least because think about it. Wouldn't you and I have healed the guy first? We would have gone right to, the, right to the problem that was in front of us, right? Jesus reaches past that to the greater problem. Jesus reaches past that to something more profound and more eternal. Because our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the same thing. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift, the same thing. And to receive it, we only have to ask and pass it on. But to ask for it, we must first admit that we need it. In Matthew's gospel, it reads, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Greek word he uses here is ophilimata, and it's a commercial term, not a religious one, denoting something which is owed or something which is due, something which is a duty or an obligation to give or to pay. In other words, it means a debt in the widest sense of the term. And the word forgive has similar commercial connotations, literally meaning to wipe the slate clean. Now, just think about that for a minute. It seems preposterous to most of us. I mean, try this with your bank manager. Try it with your mortgage lender. Try it with your credit card provider, right? You write them a little letter, to whom it may concern, my family and I appear to have borrowed far more than we can afford to pay. I'm writing, therefore, to ask you to erase from your hard drives all record of everything we currently owe. Forgive us our debts. Let's call it quits. Yours faithfully. <laughs> it's, a, it's ridiculous. It, it would be ridiculous to think that this would happen. It would be naive. Not the way the world works. Not the way the world works at all. But then Jesus comes into our world with otherworldly ideas. Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples and they started praying it likely a year before his death. And perhaps when they prayed, forgive us our sins, they might have remembered the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This prodigal son stumbling and stinking up the road with his fist full of mixed motives and his flimsy apology in his back pocket, stumbling down the road finally to his father and he blurts out, Father, I have sinned. But before he can deliver his speech, he was hugged by his father, handed the, credit, the family credit card again, and welcomed home. It wasn't the speech. It was never the speech. It was only ever that he had come home. You see, it doesn't matter what you've said or done, what you've thought about saying or doing, where you've been or who you've been there with. 
there is more grace in God than sin in you. Shall I read it again? It doesn't matter where you've said or done. It doesn't matter what you've thought about saying or doing. It doesn't matter where you've been or who you've been there with. There is more grace in God than sin in you. This is the power of forgiveness. See, you cannot be too bad, too broken, or too boring for God's unconditional love, only too proud to acknowledge how desperately you need it. Ask and you will receive, Jesus says. Take, take one step toward the Father and he'll come running toward you. Stammer that unconvincing apology to him and he'll hug you silent. Pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Twelve little words and he'll do it. He'll do it. He'll forgive you just like that. He'll wipe the slate clean. God never tires of forgiving us, says Pope Francis. We get tired of asking forgiveness. I think that's true. God never tires of it. It's something that he provides that is so powerful. Forgiveness is where our need is met by God's provision. We're not trying to appease God or curry favor with him to get his love. No, he's already poured it out to us through Christ. And he simply wants us to surrender to him just the way we are. No preconditions, no cleaning yourself up and no changing in order to please him. It's a misnomer that people think about coming to God. Like, they feel like they got to clean themselves up before they can go to church, right? They got to clean themselves up before they go to God. Nothing could be further from the gospel truth because we come to God just as we are. Just as we are with our history and our past and our issues and our baggage. And then he begins the process of cleaning you up. He's the one. He's the only one who can because you're a mess. You're messed up. I'm messed up. And when we try to clean ourselves up, it gets worse. Jesus is the only one who can clean you up because of what Jesus has done. As the apostle John puts it, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All of it. Wow. All of it, past, present, and future. Whoa. Now I'm messing with your theology. Confession of sin is so important. And it feels negative, doesn't it? It kind of, confession kind of feels negative, but it isn't. Millions of people have found freedom from addictions through 12-step programs, and the fifth step is simple confession. We admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. There's such power in confessing our sins, not just to God, but to another person. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Everybody say reconciled. Reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Now listen, where else in the scripture do you find that we are commanded to worship God second? Something really powerful that God had in mind with forgiveness, not just of your sins, but of working with others and their sins. We sometimes separate our relationship with God and our relationship with people. We sometimes um, feel like we, 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 sep- we separate these things and we segment them in our lives and this is my life with God and this is kind of how I deal with everybody else, but we can't be more reconciled with him than we are with our neighbor. Our prayers and our relationships, our prayers and our relationships are inextricably linked. They are intricately interwoven. As we forgive those who sin against us, we receive God's forgiveness. Because the Lord's Prayer is really a cry for reconciliation at every level. In our broken relationship with God, we start with our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. In our broken relationships with one another, forgive us as we forgive. And in our broken relationship with the world, your kingdom come, your will be done. He's working to reconcile these things. To put the world back together the way it's supposed to be. At the age of six years old, Ruby Bridges was volunteered by her mother to become the first African-American girl to attend an all-white elementary school in Louisiana. Each day, she was escorted to and from the school by up to 25 federal marshals to protect her from the crowd of angry protesters at the school gates. One woman would regularly scream death threats at Ruby. Another protester held a black doll aloft in a coffin. Every parent pulled their kids, their child, out of the school. Having braved the crowd's hatred, Ruby would sit all alone in an empty classroom. She was taught by Barbara Henry, the only teacher willing to offer her an education. Ruby recalls wandering the school during her breaks, looking for the, all the other children. Images of this tiny little girl so smartly dressed and clutching her school bag, guarded by suited men twice her size, it polarized America. Norman Rockwell depicted the scene in a famous painting. He called it the problem we all live with. Watching this tragedy unfold, child psychologist Robert Coles offered Ruby counseling. Once a week, he sat in the humble home she shared with her four siblings and her parents who could neither read nor write. 
You look like you were talking to the people in the street on your way into school yesterday, he said on one occasion. Did you finally get angry with them? Were you telling them to leave you alone? No, doctor, replied Ruby politely. I didn't tell them anything. I didn't talk to them. Well, who are you talking to? The little girl stared at him. I was talking to God. I was praying for, to God for the people in the street. You were praying for them? But Ruby, why were you praying for them? Her eyes widened. Well, don't you think they need praying for? <laughs> Robert Coles was lost for words. Regaining his composure, he whispered, what do you say when you pray for them, Ruby? Oh, I always say the same thing. Please, God, try to forgive these people because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. It's a powerful story that we need to take in in our history. Jesus calls all of us who follow him, who are called by his name, to forgive those who sin against us. And this is how the cycles of hatred are broken in a culture. Listen, one chapel. Our world is bitterly divided between left and right, black and white, rich and poor, east and west, liberal and conservative, men and women, religious fundamentalism and free market capitalism. It's a mess. The lawyer and apologist Michael Ramsden says that the three most powerful words in the English language right now are currently, I am offended. <laughs> Families are breaking apart. Societies are fragmenting. International alliances are ending, politics is more polarizing than ever, tribalism, nationalism, protectionism, it's all just proliferating. And at such a time, we simply cannot separate our prayers for the coming of God's kingdom from Christ's radical call to be reconciled with those who sin against us. Reconciliation is what the coming of God's kingdom looks like. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see, whenever we're offended and hurt, we can choose to forgive. We can remain silent on social media when our views are attacked. Some of you are not convinced. <laughs> no, I can't. I must respond. We can deny ourselves the sugary sympathy of victimhood. We can love and pray for those who would otherwise be our enemies. Jesus says that when we do so, as we stop pointing fingers and unclench our fists, 
and open our palms that the Father will give us grace. As the brilliant author and theologian C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. Now, I want you to stop right here. Stop right here, and as we're going along this, I want you to consider this. What if forgiveness is not just kind of a, a puny and kind of pansy way of dealing with hurts? What if forgiveness is not just some kind of wimpy way that we're nice to mean people, but instead is a supernatural and powerful gift from God to overcome sin and defeat evil? What if that's what it is? I want to submit to you today that forgiveness is the way, the way Jesus taught us to overcome darkness and defeat the vile bitterness that harms hearts and ruins relationships. That's why forgiveness can be so freeing in your life because forgiveness is loosening chains from your past, breaking free from the control of others. This is exactly what Jesus models for us as he died on a cross, praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. On the worst day of Jesus' life, while hanging on a cross, bruised, bloodied, beaten, and dying, he was defeating the devil and reconciling the world to God. There are probably people in your life who have hurt you deeply. And the idea of forgiving them may be really painful, difficult for you to reconcile. But until you choose to forgive, they still have a hold on your heart. Unforgiveness, it is said, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Forgiving is not naive. It's not forgetting. It's not saying that what the other person said or did was okay in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't mean leaving yourself exposed to all future attacks. Forgiving may involve talking to a friend or getting counseling or even going to the police. But forgiveness is the choice to love and let go, not hate and hold on. It's a choice to love and let go, not hate and hold on. And listen, listen, one church, one chapel, um, our, our, this family, I know what happens in our family, in my family personally and in this church family. I know what happens. People get sideways with each other and it's, there's things that happen and, and forgiveness tends to be a process. It doesn't all happen in one quick moment. Sometimes it's a process and it has to unfold and you have to decide over and over again to forgive. And as we choose to forgive again and again, we find that there's something miraculous that happens in our own lives. As Jesus puts it when Peter asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to like seven times? He thinks he's awesome. Thinks he's really big. Seven times? 
Even in his question, it, 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 it's the connotation of, I'm counting how many times. Okay, that's it. Jesus responds to him and says, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus didn't mean 490. He meant something beyond. He doesn't want you to count. It seems so difficult to do, doesn't it? Forgive again and again and again. But if you'll think carefully about your life, that's what Jesus has done for you. And the older I get, the more I realize I'll need it the rest of my life. <laughs> I thought I'd be further along by now. I thought I'd be better. I thought I'd be just be able to handle more things, not get as offended about things. No, what happens is God keeps going deeper into my soul, into my heart, and making me more like him. Ruby Bridges ministered reconciliation in situations that were socially extreme. And her example is undeniably extraordinary for all of us, but we can all follow her example in less dramatic ways. Daily, routine ways where we can live out reconciliation in the mundane intersections of our family or our workplace or our school or our neighbors. I want to suggest to you a, a practice that has to do with forgiveness. And it's called praying the examine. The examine, it's a spiritual discipline known as the daily examine. And it's a technique of prayerful reflection on the events of the day in order to detect God's presence and discern his direction for your life. It's attributed to Ignatius Loyola in his spiritual exercises. And it's a very simple process. Anybody can do it. And yet it's incredibly powerful as a tool for confession, for reconciliation, and uh, for personal transformation in your own heart. And I think it's a practical way of becoming a little bit more like Jesus every single day. There's a great deal written on it if you want to look it up. Over 2,000 years, people have been talking about examining our consciences, and most notably the Jesuits uh, who popularized the examine, which advocates various steps for self-reflection. Now, Pete Gregg in How to Pray, in his book, he simplifies the process with a four-step equivalent, and I want to give that to you. The prayer of examine, adapted by Pete Gregg, number one, replay, replay the day. Start with replaying your entire day in as much detail as possible. You'll want to you just skim through all the big moments and obvious events, but try to think about the the in-between moments. Try to think about the, the mundane moments, attitudes, casual conversations, a moment with your kid, a brief conversation with a clerk, the driver that pulled in front of you on I-35. And then ask, where was God when that happened? Where was God in that situation? Where was God in that moment of frustration or pain? Some have called this a rummaging for God, like, like rummaging through a junk drawer, searching for something. It's difficult, so it helps to go, I think it helps to go chronologically through your day. And as you do, you'll likely discover you have more to repent from than 
you originally thought. <laughs> but you'll also discover that there's more to rejoice over than you realized. There are 550 references to remembering in the Bible. As we remember, we start to see how God is present in our lives. We recognize that he's somehow with us, how he's actually working in all things, in all people, in all places, and at all times. Number two, rejoice. Rejoice. As you rummage, you'll find precious and valuable things that you would have missed. You'll start to see many ways that God has blessed you, and you'll see the frequency of his whispers to you. You might remember the unexpected surprise of bumping into an old friend or that YouTube video that someone sent you to brighten your day or your teenage son just dropping by to give you a hug. That never happens. And then <laughs> there's moments like that glorious cup of coffee in the late afternoon, the beautiful song lyric on the radio or the warmth of your own bed. But you'll also begin to see that God's not just in the things that we love, but he's also with us in the valleys, in our doubts, and even in our sin. This is why it's more useful, I think, to pray where rather than why. In other words, where were you today when I was afraid, God? Where were you today during that argument that I had? Where are you right now in my weariness or my disappointment? David G. Benner puts it like this, unwelcome circumstances are not gifts, but they may contain a gift. Number three is repent. Repent. As you replay the day in detail and rejoice in God's blessings, you'll also be reminded of actions, words, thoughts, attitudes that were wrong. The Holy Spirit will remind you where you were selfish or arrogant or lustful or unkind and those are the things that are pretty easy to ignore in the moment, but much harder to excuse under the direct gaze of God as you pray. And as it comes up, we have a choice. We can hide like Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned, or we can step out into the open, repent, and turn from those ways. Most of us have a routine for hygiene right, where we bathe or shower off the dirt from our bodies. Most of us do. Some of you need to work on it. But <laughs> often we don't have a routine where we ask God to cleanse us and make us clean. It's not a routine thing. And the truth is, without this regular discipline, we start to stink. We start to normalize shameful behavior. But if we'll confess our sins regularly, our lives will begin to smell sweet. And we find health and holiness and, and we become a little bit more like Jesus every day. Number four, reboot. Reboot. After we've replayed the day and rejoiced and repented, we look to tomorrow and ask God for strength to live a little more for him and less for ourselves. For his glory and not our own. 
2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. Everybody say transformed. Transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But here's a question. How does it actually happen? How does that actually happen? Does it just happen automatically regardless of your choices? If you've met a grumpy old Christian you realize there's nothing inevitable about becoming more like Jesus. Right? Come on, you grumpy old Christians. Here's the truth. We receive this transformation incrementally, day by day, choice by choice, because it's in it that we train our brains to rejoice always, and incline our hearts toward God again and again, away from the shadows and toward the light. On July 15th, 2011, Ruby Bridges was invited by President Obama to the White House, where Norman Rockwell's painting of her was temporarily on display. And the two of them stood there looking at the little girl in the white dress as she walked to school in front of hateful graffiti, the first African-American girl to attend William Franz Elementary School and the first African-American commander-in-chief. President Obama turned to Ruby and said, if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't be here today. Ruby Bridges reminds us that our choices to forgive can change the world can change the world we're living in. They can break the cycles of bitterness, heal divisions, multiply the grace of God in our own lives, and in other words, can change the world around us. But man, we got to live that out. Without forgiveness, all of our prayers are dead religion. But when we forgive those who hurt us, when we receive God's forgiveness, and then it pours, it spills out over other people over our lives, over our circumstances, when we forgive those who hurt us, we hallow the Father's name. We pray his kingdom. We see his kingdom coming to earth as we do it. And we ourselves are forgiven and healed. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your head right where you are. And I want you to just think about what we've spoken of today And I think there are two kinds of people I just want to highlight in the room. One one kind of person, you're sitting here, you're listening to this message, but somewhere in your mind is clattering around this event, this problem, this thing that you don't believe God can forgive you for. Somehow you're too bad and too broken for him to forgive you. It's not true. And today, I want you to consider, consider the fact that his forgiveness has been chasing you down all your life. His love has been running towards you. And he, would you consider today that you can be and that you are forgiven? And don't let that thing continue to beat you up. It doesn't matter if it's an event from your past or if it's a habit that you can't seem to get rid of. 
God's not tired of forgiving you. Receive it today. Second type of person is a person who's been hurt, been wounded by someone. Typically, it's someone close to us because when strangers hurt us, it doesn't, it doesn't have a lasting impact often, but it could be anyone. It could be any circumstance or something in your history, something from your wounded yesterdays that just, oh, you can't let go of it. The anger and the hurt just keeps welling up and you just, you don't know if you can relinquish control of this thing. And it might be a, a person that hurt you in your family or it might be a disappointment with God. It, it could be any number of things where you've been hurt and now you have to realize that God's forgiveness must flow through you toward them. And you might think to yourself, well, I can't let them off the hook. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is just relinquishing your control for judgment. Forgiveness is relinquishing judgment to God himself, who's much better at it than you and me. And so as we worship together, I want you to be willing. Be, be a, a, a person who considers here in this moment, I'm going to give, I'm going to offer something that I've been offered. I'm going to receive what Christ has done for me, and I'm going to then give it to someone else. So Father, we just pray that you'd work in our hearts today. Show us. Lead us, heal us, deliver us from these, these things that torment us. Forgive sin, heal our hearts as we forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.